Rio de Janeiro with a big man. Welcome to Frio de Janeiro. This is Abid Iman. I'm super excited about the guests we have for you in this episode. It is Jane Fernandez. Now, she is one of Australia's leading sports administrators, and her most recent role was with Football Federation Australia as the general manager of the bid for the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Just a few weeks ago from recording this, FIFA announced that Australia and New Zealand were successful in their bid for hosting the World Cup. It's very exciting news, and I'm pumped up for a World Cup to come here finally to Australia and New Zealand. Jane has so much experience in sport management. She's been uh, working at the Olympic Games, the Asian Cup football, has great expertise in event management. Uh, And the beauty of this conversation is she shares so much insight in what it takes to bid for a World Cup. FIFA has been a lot more transparent. So Jane talks us through the big milestones in the bid process. It took many, many years, some of the big moments. And I think the big the big takeaway from this conversation is uh, appreciation of what it takes to host a World Cup and appreciation of just how globally competitive it is to land a World Cup tournament and an excitement for what's to, to come in the future. I think it's been a bit of a challenging time. Uh, that's actually an understatement, but it's been a very challenging time around the world. Just sprinkles of good news like this just give us a bit of an optimistic view of the future. And as usual, the one-stop shop, the main hub of all the goodies is abeardimam.com, where there'll be links to all the things, all the cool stuff that we mention in the show. So let's kick off the conversation with Jane Fernandez. Jane Fernandez, it's an absolute pleasure for you to join me. And I've been so excited about this conversation because you're someone who had such a senior role, um, a major role in this amazing piece of news to give us some joy during this time with Australia and New Zealand being awarded the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. Absolute pleasure to have you join me. Oh, it's great to be here with you to talk about the bid and and uh, fantastic that we can also now talk about the fact that we're going to be hosting the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023. Before we get deep into um, that process, which is so fascinating, I would love to paint a picture of whereabouts in Australia you grew up and how you got involved in sport. Yeah, so I'm from Sydney, uh, born and bred. Um, And, you know, like any normal Aussie kid, we played a lot of sport in the backyard. Uh, Summer and winter, we're always out there, our poor parents driving us around lots of different sporting fields. But actually, where I grew up, girls weren't given the opportunity to play football. Girls played netball, which I I love, uh, and boys played football and they also played uh, rugby. So I came to, um, to know and love the game quite late in life. And uh, we actually grew up going to lots of live sporting events, but football was, was never one of those events. What did you play as a youngster? I, we did, uh, I played a lot of netball and I played uh, in high school a lot of cricket and we also did a lot of swimming um, and, and, and running as well. So they were, they were the major sports, but netball, netball was probably um, and cricket were the main team sports that I participated in. You've had a great career in sport management, behind the scenes of 
amazing sporting events as well. How did you get your start and what were the initial steps in your journey as a sport administrator? So I was really, really fortunate in that uh, Sydney were awarded the rights to host the Olympic Games in 2000 and I finished university uh, a little bit before that. So I went to university and did a Bachelor of Arts Leisure Management degree and uh, I always knew I wanted to work, work in major sporting events. I loved going to the events. I loved the power that major sporting events has to take you away from your day-to-day and you just get caught up in the emotion of watching your team, your country uh, could compete at the pinnacle of their sport. And so I always knew I wanted to be part of that. And then uh, when we, we were awarded the rights for the Sydney Olympic Games, I just knew that was going to be um, the start of my career in the industry. What was your involvement with the Sydney Olympics? I worked for the Olympic Coordination Authority, who were tasked with uh, the big job of setting up the, the venues um, based out at Sydney Olympic Olympic Park, where the main stadium was located, plus a number of other key uh, key venues. So I started there in 1999, uh, worked with a tremendous team, and from there we started building the common domain and planning on how we were going to operate the precinct areas out there at Sydney Olympic Park. I understand it was 2005 that you moved into Football Federation Australia, and you were there for the beginning of this transformation of the sport. 2005 was an amazing year with the Socceroos making the World Cup. So what was it like being part of Football Federation Australia at that time? Yeah, wow. It was, it was just fantastic. I'd, I'd worked previously at ANZ Stadium in their events and operations team, working with, again, an, another amazing team. I've been very blessed to have been uh, surrounded by some amazing leaders in sports administration who have taught me so much. So I left ANZ Stadium and then joined football at that rebirthing time. Um, It was phenomenal just to see uh, so many committed and passionate people about making sure that we could relaunch football, um, qualify for a World Cup, start the A-League, and just being part of that experience um, was something that I'll I'll always value. We qualified for the 2006 uh, FIFA Men's World Cup. You got to go over, was it in a professional capacity or purely as a fan? It was a professional capacity. Um, In those days, FIFA actually allowed the member associations to manage tickets and hospitality and and travel packages. Um, We also did a lot of work with the Socceroos around open training um, sites so our fans could go and experience um, watching the boys train and, and have get autographs and interviews and really be part of the overall experience. So my role was coordinating a number of those different different elements um, to World Cup. It was unbelievable. I mean, the support of um, of the Australian fans who travelled to Germany, but also it was like the Socceroos became everyone else's second team. And so as we progressed through, um, you know, the the crowds were really on our side. And did you get there? Were you there in 2006? Unfortunately, I was too young. I was in year 11. I wish I could have postponed my exams and gone, (laughs) but it planted the seed. It was great. And I remember when we qualified for the round of 16 and back at the hotel in Stuttgart, um, lots of fans turned up and they were um, cheering with uh, Mr. Lowy. And I think that some of them even had him crowd surfing at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What was your highlight of that entire World Cup? Yeah, wow. I think um, I'll always remember the first game. 
um, in Kaiserslautern when uh, we were playing Japan and it was, uh, we were down. And um, finally to, to win that game really set the momentum, set us going forward um, right through to the round of 16. An amazing night. Oh, just the generation of football fans that that event has inspired. You know, and we're, we're going to talk about the bid soon, but I feel like these, these are all really important steps on the journey. And another one was 2010 where we bidded for the 2022 FIFA Men's World Cup up against some really imposing countries, Qatar, USA, Japan, South Korea. I understand you were involved with that bid. What do you, or how do you actually reflect on that process where we learnt a lot of harsh lessons? Yeah, we certainly did. Uh, so that's 10 years ago now. So it was, a, it was a very different time. It was a very different FIFA. Um, the bid that we've just run, it was a very transparent bid. Um, we were able to see who voted for who. And those transparent, transparency measures weren't in place for 2010. So um, it was a very different process run in a very different way. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot reported around the process and the outcome of the process. And, I mean, needless to say, it's been such a different experience. Um, obviously, having a smile on our faces, having come up trumps is always really, really great as well, a very, very different emotional roller coaster. Um, but I think FIFA learned a lot from, from those times, as did we as bidders. Um, and uh, I think we've all we've all learned as a as a part of the process, and and as a result, we were able to put forward a bid that was six, really um, really sold the dream for our country and for that for New Zealand. From the fans' perspective, looking through the documents that FIFA were posting about the bid, um, you'd read all the bid books, you could see who voted for who, as you said. That transparency was so refreshing and you just wish that we had that for 2010 because it would have been so interesting to see what mark we would have got out of five in that objective um, criteria. But I guess yeah. that's history now, isn't it? That is absolute history now and it's, um, it's nice to know that we can go forward towards 2023 um, and start planning with New Zealand to deliver the best ever FIFA Women's World Cup. When did that planning start? So when when was the idea launched of us bidding for the 2023 World Cup? Well, actually, when we delivered the Asian Cup in 2015, uh, we had spoken around the opportunity, the possibility of going forward and bidding to host the FIFA Women's World Cup, but the timing just wasn't right. Um, we weren't really ready to do it. And then in 2017, uh, we regrouped and we had another discussion around, okay, maybe now it's time that we get back together and, and put in a, a bid for 2023. So um, that's exactly what we did. We started with a feasibility um, review of hosting a World Cup and with the support of the federal government, we were able to progress and, and put forward a bid. At that time, we were bidding solo. So we, we moved quite fast, actually, in um, bidding just as Australia only, um, until 2019 when FIFA expanded the competition, the FIFA Women's World Cup, to 32 teams. The early days there was, I understand, a roadshow. So you were meeting with governments back in 2017 to get that support from, from federal, state governments, which would have been really important. How did you approach that? And was 2010 at all mentioned? Uh, because 
in the media reports that $46 million taxpayer money was, was talked about a lot. Were governments able to see the new opportunity and look beyond all of that? Was that an easy conversation? Yeah, so we started with the, the federal government and then we, once we knew we had their support, um, we progressed to holding a, a big stakeholder workshop with all of the governments across Australia um, absolutely, it was uh, it was mentioned at, at the start, and there are lots of questions around the transparency of the process. And governments had to be certain that this time the process would be transparent, which we were able to give them that certainty. Um, it was also a really important time for women's sport. So women's sport has just gone from strength to strength. Um, we just held uh, just recently. We I went to the the cricket World Cup there at the MCG almost a full house, and it's wonderful to see women's sport on centre stage. Um, governments understand the power of sport. They understand the importance of, of sport to drive um, outcomes, gender equality, inspiring generations of girls to compete at their best. And all of those things helped uh, boy government support, um, and that's how we were able to, to move forward. I like, I've read somewhere that you said the bid was about being strong, confident, creative, the way that we play football. Uh, when you're the general manager of the bid, how, uh, sort of what is your, your process of oversight and how much are you across? Because it's such a massive process. It is. It's a huge process. Um, the most important thing for me is having the right people in the right roles. So we built a fantastic team. A number of the team had worked on the Asian Cup, so had really great knowledge in delivering first-class football competitions and tournaments. Um, we had varied skill sets, so we all complemented each other really well. And then on top of that, we also had a number of um, steering committees and we ensured that we had the governance in place um, that was needed uh, to check off everything that was being developed and put forward to FIFA. And then when we joined forces with, um, with New Zealand, again, there was an additional joint bid steering committee that was in place um, just again as a nice, uh, a nice way to uh, check that all the balances, make sure everything was in, in, uh, as FIFA needed. And, um, yeah, so it all comes down to having the right people in the right roles and building the team. No different to a football team. On a football team, there's 11 on the pitch. Um, how many were on the, on the pitch for you? Not that many, unfortunately. Oh, really? Um, no, at our, at our peak, we probably had about eight people. So it was a very lean team, very small team, um, but a very experienced team. Uh, the football politics side of it is really, really fascinating. So FIFA used to have the ex-co or the executive committee who had 22 members. Now it's the FIFA council, which is a 37-member extremely diverse um, group of football stakeholders from around the world. That 37-person council were ultimately responsible for voting on the candidate countries. Can you please take us into a little bit of that FIFA council and how you targeted or tried to, tried to put your case forward to them and what opportunities you had to do that? Yeah. So um, COVID really changed our strategy around this. I mean, originally, um, it's always better to have face-to-face meetings whenever you can. And they started in France at the World Cup in 2019. Um, and then once uh, we were all unable to travel anymore because of COVID, we really had to pivot the strategy and start sort of looking at, okay, how are we going to engage 
Safita Council members, those that, as you rightly say, are the ones that cast the votes. Um, and so we were able to, you know, develop a lot of um, specific content around telling the story of football in Australia and how it would resonate with the different confederations. Um, there are obviously a lot of Zoom calls and, and phone calls um, between FIFA Council members and our president and the pres president of New Zealand football. And I'd say that the fact that we got the highest uh, evaluation score, 4.1 out of 5, meant that we were the strongest candidate. And so being able to, um, to, to leverage off that, to really tell the story and to authentically communicate that this bid um, is, is something that the whole of Australia and New Zealand want. We had over 800,000 people sign up um, to support the bid. And we were able to demonstrate that not only will we deliver the best ever FIFA Women's World Cup, we'll also make sure that we leave a legacy for our countries and for our region. I'm really interested in how or what rules were in place, for instance, when you interact with a FIFA Council member. Did it always have to be in uh, in a super transparent way in terms of it's reported here or do you have conversations that are one-on-one? -on -one? Like what were those lobbying opportunities like? Mm -hmm. Well, again, transparency, number one. Um, under the bidding reg regulations, there's certain rules that you have to abide by. Um, whenever you're presenting on your bid uh, to FIFA council members or to other people that, um, that may be advocating on your behalf, and every call is reported to FIFA. So um, FIFA is aware whenever you're presenting or going to have a conversation with any of the council members. So again, 100% transparent. Um, and there was a, a certain level of compliance applied to all of that. And we were 100% transparent in all of our reportings to, to FIFA. My name is Abid and we're talking about the bid, so uh, I do I do recognise there's irony there, and I'll share with you that in high school I was student councillor every single year as elected by my peers, because I had a slogan called "Make a bid for a bid." Oh, very good. <laughs> I'm interested in your bid book, which is 188 pages, an absolute masterpiece. And if uh, any football fan or sports fan is interested in this World Cup, yeah, I think it's a great read. That book, how long did it take to compile? Because you, you talk about articulating your message. Yeah, so we actually wrote two books. Um, the first book is Australia Only. And because we were bidding for so long without New Zealand, we had to, um, we, you know, based on the timelines, we, we had to have a book ready to go. Um, and then when the, the competition um, was expanded and um, at that point in time, some of the, the requirements changed, they, they grew as well. And so what that meant was FIFA gave um, further time to develop and to submit the book. So originally it was October of 2019 and then it got ex um, extended into the December. Um, but the way we started, and we, we did start early on purpose because we knew the amount of work that needed to go into um, the bid book we looked at the requirements for 2026 for the Men's World Cup mm -hmm. and we looked at the chapter outline that was developed for that competition and we really based our starting point off that. And so members of the bid team owned different elements of the bid book. Um, we had an amazing editor of the bid book, a lady called Jill Davies, who is actually the mastermind of the Sydney 2000 Games. And um, so Jill joined the team and um, 
we're at a really great point in in finalising the book, and um, and then very quickly we um, we joined forces with New Zealand, and we had to you know sort of start again. Really, we had a great framework there, um, but then we um, we moved very fast in working with New Zealand to ensure that the the as one bid told the story of two countries. So there would have been some if I'm right to say, some sleepless nights because that's a really short turnaround to change and now be in a, adding another country to the equation. It really was. It was a huge, huge effort by so many people. We had um, representation from New Zealand. They came, representatives came over to, um, to FFA. We had a great big workshop and it meant that we had to make decisions really quickly. Um, and sometimes that's not a bad thing. It means mm. that there's less time to labour over certain points and we just all had to agree to move forward. So we came up um, with As One. Uh, a member of my team, Kim Anderson, came up with As One um, and everyone loved it straight away. So we very quickly brought that to life. Um, White Kite, the agency who developed the brand for the, for the bid book, very quickly came up with a new brand that told the story of As One. And, um, and then the writing continued uh, a lot of sleepless nights as you say um, I think I've aged 100 years on this bid <laughs> <laughs> but it's all for a good cause in February 2020 uh, this year FIFA sent a delegation of five officials to Australia and New Zealand for the inspection for some reason I'm just picturing a rent inspection but I know this is so much more detailed and high level <laughs> Please take us into what is a FIFA inspection like? Yeah, so look, when um, a lot of thought and planning went into the, the development of the actual tour, and whilst FIFA gave us the list of the infrastructure, the stadiums, the training sites, the facilities they wanted to inspect, we spent a lot of time in thinking about how do we actually want them to feel? What do we want them to feel when they leave Australia, when they leave New Zealand? And that helped us craft a number of the activities around the inspection program. We wanted to make sure that they knew that we were operationally seamless, that, you know, from the moment they got off the plane, um, everything would be organised and everything would be on time, which it was. But we also wanted them to have fun. We wanted them to, to see the way that Australia and New Zealand deliver these major sporting events, technically excellent, but also with a big smile and a big laugh and, and really an enjoyable experience for all. So that really set the scene and that really guided us on how we developed and delivered the, top, the, um, the inspection program. So they chose the cities that they went to. So um, they started in Melbourne and then went to Adelaide and then finished off in Sydney in Australia before heading over to Wellington and, and looking at a number of cities over there in New Zealand. Um, Sydney has been proposed as the venue for the final match. So Sydney was really an important element in the inspection. We took them by ferry from Sydney Harbour down the Parramatta River to um, Stadium Australia. And that was a really unique experience. Thank goodness the sun was shining. So they had a lovely, a lovely trip. But it is a, a form of transport that we've used in the past during the Asian Cup to take um, dignitaries and VIPs to the stadium. But it really is a unique experience, something that they, they, they really do remember. What were some of the other fun moments that they had? Were there interactions with the Aussie animals, going to grassroots football games? What other things had, helped sway them? Yeah, so we had um, one of our selling points is that we truly are multicultural 
And so at every training site they wanted to see, we had grassroots kids kicking around, but we also made sure we had kids from many different countries. And um, at every site, because they speak Spanish and they speak French, the FECA delegation, we had um, French or Spanish kids coming and addressing FIFA in their language, which was just, you know, just the, it's just the one percenters all the time. They're just the little points of difference. We dressed up all of the sites with the Aswan branding so it looked like it would look during a World Cup. Another highlight for me was we um, we took FIFA to the proposed site for the International Broadcast Centre and we we had um, we dressed it up so it looked like a broadcast centre. We had drawings of how we could set it up. It was it showed them that we'd actually already done the thinking in the planning. It meant it means for them that a lot of the work's sort of already done. Um, so they were 100% confident that, um, I mean, they know we can deliver a fantastic tournament from what they saw during the infection tour. This was in Feb, so it was slightly before everything hit in terms of uh, COVID in Australia and New Zealand in terms of um, travel as well. So really great that it could be done before before anything like that happened. And at this point, yeah. J- Japan and Colombia were the only three nations um, or the only nations going up against us. Do you know why Brazil fell out of the race? Look, I only know what was publicly reported and um, they referred to the impact of COVID and they referred to the financial situation um, that they were, they were going through. I really felt for them because, and I felt for all of the bidding teams that, that decided to, to not keep going, so much work goes into these bids by so many people and to then have a situation where you know that you can't continue would just be heartbreaking. We were given a 4.1 out of 5 for a number of criteria, uh, 70% infrastructure, 30% commercial rating. I'm just looking here at some of the things that FIFA were highlighting. We got a low risk for pretty much everything. There was only one that was a medium risk and every other bidding nation had a medium risk for this as well. It was around the legal and government support documents. And I was just wondering if you could walk us into why that was a medium risk and what that entails. Yeah, sure. So FIFA um, provide a number of different agreements that need to be executed. They also provide government guarantee templates that need to be executed. Uh, the Australian government executed all of the government guarantees. So as you're aware, um, current governments can't bind future governments to anything. And so whilst the uh, guarantees were executed, there's always a, a cover letter that goes with that, um, just explaining how legislation works in Australia. Um, whilst we all know the risk is, um, is minimal, um, from a FIFA perspective, um, they have to note that there is a potential risk there. And every country, as you say, will the final ones that went through had that medium risk noted. But, yeah, the Australian government were just so supportive and so fantastic in actually executing all of the government agreements. I do know it's quite complicated um, having gone to the Brazil 2014 World Cup and I know that they don't allow, for instance, alcohol to be sold at matches because of uh, fan violence. But during the World Cup, because one of FIFA's main uh, commercial partners is Budweiser, they needed to make sure that Alcohol could be sold in stadiums for those games um, and it involved those government support documents and, and that to be passed. So that is an interesting side that I guess that we don't always think about um, what it takes to get a yeah. World Cup. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, now we won't have that issue here in Australia, the alcohol being served in stadiums, but 
in a number of countries, you're right. It is an issue and it is a challenge and there are workarounds for all of it. Australia got 4.1, Japan 3.9, and Colombia 2.8 out of 5 in terms of the objective ratings of our bids. When you found that news out, was that like a one of the best mini wins on the on the journey? <laughs> it certainly was. Oh my goodness, it was um it was such a relief. It was such a relief because I knew how important it was to get the top score. I knew that once uh, once we had that top score, then the the opportunity to really leverage that, to really push for our position, um, it was just so much stronger. So yeah, that, that was an anxious um, an anxious evening, and the date that that report was going to be released kept moving. Um, and FIFA put so much work into writing writing that report. So um, I can understand why they, they didn't want to confirm the actual release date until very late. Um, yeah, it was an it was such a relief to get that score. Yeah, that bid evaluation report was two hundred and twenty eight pages, <laughs> but it was yeah. a really fascinating reading as well because I've never really seen that from FIFA before. Just that level of okay, this is what we think. This is transparency as as well really refreshing and of course to see australia and new zealand so well rated was was yeah. a big step the first time they they'd um conducted such a process was, was for the 2026 men's bid um and that was uh, morocco and then the um the united bid between canada the usa and mexico so that was the template that they used and it's um it's just very rewarding to know that one not only did we get the top score but they've implemented this process for the Women's World Cup as it should be. Yeah, on 2026, actually, um, Craig Foster is someone who's been on on this podcast and uh, I'm a big fan of his efforts towards social justice and I think events using their platform, athletes using their platform as well to create social change. Uh, And through this process, FIFA have also wanted the bidding nations to have a focus on human rights and sustainability how did we think about that in our bid? Yeah, well, um, it was definitely a priority because we knew how important it would be to FIFA. Um, in the bid book itself, there's a, a number of um, chapters that reference sustainability, human rights. There's a dedicated chapter to it, but then also there's a legacy chapter where we, we reference that as well. So it was always absolute priority. Um, leaving a legacy was always front of mind for us from bidding as well as hosting. Um, so it was always extremely important. We partnered with um, a representative from Griffith University to, to draft the independent assessment of our human rights and sustainability plans. So that was, it, it was um, quite eye-opening actually that FIFA required every bidder to have an independent assessment. So that just shows you how important it is to them. Um, and And it's great that we ended up with a low risk around that area. Um, it, it again puts us front in the front seat for um, being able to ensure that we deliver a FIFA Women's World Cup that contemplates sustainability um, and again leaves this lasting legacy for the game, for the country, and for the region. What are some of the legacies that our World Cup, Australia, New Zealand 2023, will? will be about what are some of the key targets you want to see after the world cup yeah so in the legacy chapter the proposal we put to fifa um we broke it down into four key pillars 
The first one being around participation. So more women and girls playing football. FIFA have set the target of having 60 million women and girls playing by 2026. And that's something that we can help them achieve. Uh, we've spoken before around our commitment to having 50-50 in registration and participation levels, and that's something that hosting the Women's World Cup can help us achieve. We also um, commented around pathway opportunities for women and girls, so ensuring that, um, that we are able to have girls' academies and increase the amount of matches Matildas are playing and youth teams are playing to further develop um, develop the, the, the athletes, the footballers, but also around capacity building as well. So around women's leadership, around ensuring that we've got more female volunteers, coaches, leaders right throughout the game. And then the last pillar was around facilities investment. So ensuring that we have the facilities needed to cater for the additional uh, women and girls playing the game is also extremely important. The next step for us is to um, further expand on the four pillars. And so within FFA, we'll start looking at developing this legacy framework. And um, the legacy frame, framework will, will be developed in consultation with FIFA and also with the broader football community. Um, because whilst we, we know that we can deliver a, a fantastic tournament, we want to deliver much more than that. And the potential is, is just endless. It was June 2020 where the uh, FIFA bid evaluation reports were announced and we had that fantastic rating now we were just counting down to june 25 which was the date that fifa's council would meet and it'll be announced who was the winning bid what were those last few weeks like and it was really fascinating with the political side of things because japan's bid um well japan fell out of the race are we aware it was it about COVID as well uh, what happened for japan too yeah, they also put out a, a public statement referencing the impact of, of COVID. Um, they also noted that uh, the as one bid uh, gained the top score and um, they very graciously um, pulled out of the race um, providing um, solidarity for Asia, really. Um, and again, I really felt for their big team who we'd met along the way. Um, so much work had gone into their, to their bid. But yeah, look, there's a number of, of different elements that lead to bidders falling out. Um, but their support was just fantastic, as was the, the support of the whole Asian Football Confederation. So it was up between Australia and Colombia. Something that was fascinating as well was the, the talk around some of the UEFA or the European members of the FIFA Council who were reported to be on Colombia's side because they saw that competition uh, of the FIFA Women's World Cup as a development opportunity for that part of the world. My own view is that the FIFA Women's World Cup, the FIFA Men's World Cup is the pinnacle of the game and it should get you know the, the best platform possible. How are you getting this sort of um, intel about potential voting blocks that were happening and how are you dealing with that? Yeah, I, I'm, I totally agree with your view of the pinnacle of um, football, the, the World Cups. That's exactly what they are. So we're definitely aligned there. <laughs> well, I mean, Conmebol, I mean, sorry, UEFA actually came out and publicly supported Conmebol. So everyone knew that that was going to be their, their position. Um, it's interesting when, you, when you're talking to um, voters, um, you know, you never know. You never know until the votes are cast. 
um, the, the decision that's going to be taken. And all we can control is the message that we um, we give. All we can control is the, the bid that we develop and, and we put to FIFA and we believed in our bid and we believed in the importance of the Women's World Cup um, and we just continued on that path. We never wavered. Um, but it is, um, it's always very nerve-wracking because you do never know <laughs> until the votes are in. What are those final days like? Uh, I've seen footage of Chris Niku. He's the president of um, Football Federation Australia. James Johnson is the CEO. They were, I think it was even the day of the announcement, they were at Sydney Opera House. Of course, all the great pictures of Australian footballers, um, our players, were beamed onto the Sydney Opera House. It was a great event. But then they're on their mobile phones, and you can tell that they're at, you know, having some really high-level discussions. Were these high-level discussions happening right up to the last hours? They were. Yeah, they really were. Back at the FFA office, um, you, don't, you don't stop talking and you don't stop calling and, and, until uh, the meeting starts. So, yeah, Chris and, and James were, um, were absolutely on the phone, as was um, representatives from New Zealand football. Um, but it, it, it's just something that you just have to keep going until the votes are in. And um, they did an amazing job in ensuring that we had the support um, to be able to win. But the lighting of the Sydney Opera House was just phenomenal. I mean, we had, as you say, fo- football imagery um, projected onto the Opera House. One of the most beautiful moments for me was having the image of Julie Dolan on the Opera House sales, but we also had Julie there in person. And just seeing her response, she was so overwhelmed. And uh, she said, I, I could never have imagined that this could happen. And um, that's what this is about. You know, that's exactly what this is about. And Julie Dolan, the, the first ever Matilda. What a, what yeah. a name. What a, what a legend. How was that last day for you? If you can take us through. <laughs> I didn't have much sleep. Um, the few days before it, we were all pretty flat out. Um, and then that led into, into the Opera House moment. Um, and then we also hosted a Facebook Live, which Tara Rushton hosted for us. And all of these events all led into um, the, final, the final moments. All of the, well, the two remaining bidding nations had access into the FIFA Council meeting for that wow. agenda item. Yeah. So we were able to see all of the FIFA Council members. Um, at that point in time, our final presentations um, were played to the council members. That's when they firstly got to see them. Our final opportunity to present our case. Um, and then we were actually in the meeting whilst they were voting virtually. Um, so that was just, it was so tense in the room. Um, the anxiety that we all felt was just immense. Uh, and then and then we had to wait. We had to wait until the FIFA president was um, moved rooms and went into the, the announcement room, if you like, which was beamed out to the world. So, that, I mean, it felt like hours. It wasn't, but it felt like days. <laughs> I've done a few PowerPoint presentations in my life, but who's doing your presentations? Because that would be one of the most nerve-wracking moments ever. Yeah, so originally the rules were... Um, each bidding nation could prepare a 10-minute video package um, and you could put whatever you want in the package. Um, and then just before, a couple of days before, the, um, the FIFA Council decided that they'd like to hear from the two um, bidding nations. So Johanna Wood, who is the President of New Zealand Football, spoke on our behalf as she's a FIFA Council member. And then the FIFA Council member from Columbia also spoke. 
So they did a brief intro each, and then that led into the into the um the, the playing of the video package. I think it's a little bit of a famous a famous photo, famous video of the reaction of Australia and New Zealand being awarded the rights for the 2023 World Cup. You've talked about it in in depth. I've heard you talking about how you've. I don't think you've never jumped that high in your life. <laughs> what are your recollections of that specific moment now? Yeah, well, as I say, we were, we were, it felt like hours. We were waiting for the FIFA president to make make the announcement, and um, I was sitting next to Mark Falvo, who's the CEO of Football Federation Australia. And um, I think I said to him, I can't stop my right leg from, from shaking. And he said, I can't stop my right eye from twitching. And then uh, it was like all adrenaline fueled. And then, I mean, when the announcement came, we just heard, we heard the AU. I don't even think we waited to hear um, the whole Australia, New Zealand. And then we were just up. I mean, so much effort, so much energy had gone into this bit. It was such a relief and so exciting. I, I honestly have never jumped that high. That is pure adrenaline. <laughs> And it was a really special moment because Lucy Zelich and Craig Foster were doing a live uh, The World Game um, segment as well. And their emotions, they were both on Zoom, I think, and it was really special. Uh, I think I was a, a combination of giggling and laughing, um, uh, yeah. giggling, laughing, crying, a bit of everything, <laughs> because it just reminded me of 2010 and me and some friends, we were just so hopeful about getting a World Cup here in our country. And uh, we went to a football pub to watch it and um, I just started crying and they had to carry me out and everyone was just laughing at me because there was a few nightclubs right next door and there were people lining up and they said, who's this guy crying here? What's he crying about? <laughs> yeah, well, I, emotional I wreck. Were, I hope this time they were tears of joy. <laughs> yeah, they were. yeah, and it's like all of a sudden in just like a second, there's just all this positivity about life in the next few years because a World Cup is coming to our country. It just the amount of joy it has brought so many people has just just made me so happy. And at a time when we all need some good news, at the the press conference the next day, the New South Wales Premier basically said said that you know she'd been up speaking in front of everyone for so long now around um, and having to give messages that aren't so great, but to be able to actually announce something that is so great for the country. Um, it's just it's just overwhelming the, the level of support we've received. What was the day after like? Does FIFA get in touch with you straight away and it's on to working or uh, are you able to let your hair down a bit? Yeah, the, the FIFA guys we've been working with were on the phone straight away, which was great. Um, we've already had um, a number of kickoff meetings with FIFA and, and now the work begins. Um, so we'll we'll set up a, a a World Cup office as part of FFA, and for the next six months we'll start working with FIFA on um, selection of stadiums and host cities, and ensuring everything's in place. The foundations are set to uh, to deliver an amazing World Cup in 2023. Because most countries usually have a lot longer to uh, prepare for a World Cup. Like I remember. It's usually six to seven years, but now it's three. So I think things things do need to accelerate, don't they? Yeah, it's 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 not long at all. You're right. Um, we don't need to build any stadiums. Um, Sydney Football Stadium is already under construction, and that that will be the only new built stadium, newly built stadium. Um, so in that respect, we're really fortunate to have such great infrastructure in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, so the next step now is um, developing the FIFA entity that will deliver the tournament um, and, and starting to um, put, again, the right people in the right roles. 
um, having the governance structures in place and really engaging with the broader football family um, to deliver a World Cup that we're all proud of. When we started building the bid, we wanted to make sure that we delivered a bid regardless of winning or losing that um, the football family and the country would be really proud of. And that was one of the first um, the first targets we set ourselves, having lived the 2010 experience. Um, we wanted to make sure that the community was involved from the word go. And that's why we set up the Community Bid Champion Program. Um, so grassroots were with us all the way and we want that to continue in the delivery of the tournament. I'm going to speak to you with my West Australian cap on now I'm, and I'm speaking to you from Fremantle, Western Australia, <laughs> down the road from the Perth Stadium, which was in the bid for this World Cup. And as a football fan, I guess I was really heartbroken that we weren't part of the 2015 Asian Cup that we hosted, which was such a great tournament. And Perth being a gateway to Asia uh, as a major city here, do we know how um, the the selection of the stadiums will pan out and whether Perth is pretty safe to be part of it? Yeah, so um, what we know is that... um FIFA would like people would love to be here as soon as they can be here to start commencing a process of selecting stadiums and host cities. Unfortunately, COVID is going to delay that process a little bit. Um, but we know that all of our host cities that have gone into the bid um, were well received by FIFA, um, and the same for New Zealand as well. Um, the next steps for us are to um, work with FIFA on what their optimal number of venues would be. Um, now that the competition has expanded, um, additional stadiums will be required. So I think in Russia there were 12 stadiums and that was the same number of teams. Um, in France, for only 24 teams, there were nine stadiums. So we've put, to, we've put forward a combination of 13 stadiums across Australia and, and New Zealand. Um, so the next step now is to really um, put a, 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 a case to, to FIFA as to why we want to play games right across Australia. We want everyone to um, to participate in the FIFA Women's World Cup. We've also got base camps um, identified in all of the all of the areas, all of the host cities. Um, so again, this is the first time base camps have actually been part of a Women's World Cup bid. They've been in Men's World Cups forever. Um, so having a, a team based in your in your host city or in a region around a host city really also um, allows the the festival of football to be to be taken to parts where potentially games won't be played. Jane, I thank you so much for taking us in depth uh, around the bid and take us on that journey. I think uh, I've got a, a much more broader appreciation of what it takes to um, to bid successfully for an event like this, and so much more excited as well just to understand that. What's next for you now, Jane? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'll be in the uh, FIFA Women's World Cup office at FFA and working with FIFA to to start setting up the um, the delivery model and the and the governance structures um, for for the World Cup. Um, and then once the entity is um, is set up, it's the entity then will that will start employing um, people to work on the delivery of the tournament. And you know that that would be my plan to to stick around and and to see it through. Thank you so much, Jane. And just uh, for the listener, how can they keep supporting and and really get into this World Cup on the journey? That uh, three more years to go. How can they support? Well, at this stage, the um, the As One channels are still live, so um, they can still um, get up to date through through that process through those channels. 
Um, and then FIFA will start creating a brand around the tournament and um, that's so they can keep up to date on everything that's happening as we as we move forward to 2023. I've actually just had another little light bulb. We know that um, during this time there's been some massive events that have had to be cancelled and it's um, or postponed. It's brought up a whole new um, way of thinking around mega sporting events and has this been a lesson or something that you've needed to now think about in regards to, okay, what are some of the, the risks that, that present themselves when planning for an event? Oh, absolutely. I think that the major sporting events and also the arts industry um, has now been changed forever. And the way that you, um, the way that you tackle the, um, the development and the delivery of a major tournament will never, ever be the same. There will always be greater risks that have to be um, that have to be thought through, um, and you know obviously the insurance industry is really going to <laughs> really going to have to have to take an, another view of um, how major events are, are insured. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know the capacity issue of stadiums, um, the 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 issue of crowds moving. Um, through precincts, any any event that has a mass gathering um, has been changed forever. Jane, you've had such a massive impact and you've helped change hopefully Australia forever and Australia and New Zealand forever with, through the, uh, the contribution you've made to getting this World Cup. So thank you so much for joining me on the show and thank you for what you've done as well. Thank you, Abid. Thank you for having me. What an absolute beauty of an episode that was. Thanks to Jane Fernandez for joining us and a huge thank you to you for listening. As always, the goodies for this episode will be on abidimam.com. Until next time, keep smiling, keep scoring.